Good morning, church. Uh, today we'll be in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you had been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, put to death therefore, what is earthly to you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you once, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put, it off, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here is not the Greek and the Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also must for, you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which, is, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the, word of the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in, in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us gather here today on this beautiful, finally fall weather day. Lord, we know we live in a broken world. I pray that as believers, we will continue to focus on you and not on the things of this earth. May we be an image of you in our neighborhoods, our networks, and to the nations always. Please be with us as Lance preaches your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. It's a lot to read, so appreciate you working through all of that. Well, um, here we are again. We are uh, gathered, and as we do, um, we are working through what it looks like to be devoted church on a daily basis uh, to the things of the first church. And so if we're going to recapture the kinds of things uh, that the early church was devoted to, surely we need a good understanding of those things. And so far, as we worked through uh, Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 42, um, ultimately, we've worked through a few things, right? We've worked through this idea of devotion, which as a reminder, has the idea behind it of holding fast to something, to persist in something, or to persevere. That would mean something is coming against you, right? If you're going to have to hold fast, that means there's some sort of resistance that you've got to tighten your grip on something. And the something is what we've been unpacking the last several weeks. Actually, this is week six now. And so we've talked about 
uh, the, for, the, the fellowship. That's where we started, right? We then unpack that a little bit by saying, really, the point of fellowship is that we would be formed in community, formed under the image of the likeness of the image of the Son. And so that's the hope inside of community, not just to come and enjoy one another, but ultimately to partner with one another, to, uh, to, to bring one another to the formation of Jesus. We also talked about the apostles' teaching. We did that, and we talked about how they were obsessed with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And then we again expanded upon that by saying, look, this document that we hold in our hands is the most reliable historical document that you can have. And there's data, and there's facts. It's not just bias from a pastor. You can go and look this up. If you miss that, you can go and look and listen online on our YouTube channel or wherever it may be. Uh, so we talked about the reliability of the Bible. We then talked about last week with Chris's sermon on the breaking of the bread, that the early church was devoted to the breaking of the bread. And today I'm going to expand on what the devotion to the breaking of the bread is. And if I'm really candid here, I have to know there's a bit of a leap. There's a bit of a leap that you have to come with me on. And here's why. Does anybody think that it's difficult to be devoted to the breaking of the bread? Is there anyone in this room that's like, man, I just really wish I could just be more devoted to communion? Just I, just, I just really need that in my life. There's not probably a lot of people that you're thinking, I just need more breaking of bread in my life. But you would say, I need more fellowship. I need the right kind of community. I need the apostles' teaching. Matter of fact, I need the prayers, which is what we'll uh, begin to go through next week. And so this one is a little bit off in your mind and in mine if we forget the point behind what we just did, what Rodney just led us through. And if you remember the words again and again, do we rehearse these words on a weekly basis? Do this in remembrance of me. He took the bread and he said, do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and he said, do this also in remembrance of me. It's this idea of remembrance, this idea of exactly what Paul said at the end of Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 17, that whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's memorializing. It's remembering Jesus in all of life. So that's where we're headed. That's where we're I don't think they were only committed to the table. They're committed to a life that represents the table in every way, on every day. And that's also your call as a believer. Our mission statement as a church is inviting, not telling, not demanding, but inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life, every avenue of life, again, every day and in every way. And most of us go, well, we do this on Sunday. It's the Bible Belt after all. It's what we do. But what, after all, is Sunday doing to your Monday? Is it infecting it at all? Is it affecting it at all? And the people that laid the groundwork for the faith that we now hold and cherish they didn't just live this out one or two days a week. It was every day and in every way. Now, friends, Paul assumes this is normal, the author of Colossians. He assumes that your every day and your every way will be affected by what happens at the table. That the gospel is rehearsed not just when we come to table, but now we are informed and we are formed by the gospel that we rehearse at the table. And what kind of life, what kind of life would that produce? 
What kind of marriage? As a matter of fact, if you, if you kept reading in Colossians 3, the next verse is wives, submit to your husbands. You want to know the kind of life that we be produced by the gospel? It infects our marriages. Wives do this. Husbands do this. Oh yeah, children, you're involved too. It's why we don't have a gathering for every age because children, at least in Colossae and other passages, you see children in the gathering. You see now Paul writing to those children saying, oh yeah, by the way, obey and honor your parents. So it affects all parts of life. But we've got to get to what does this really mean and how would, our, how would my marriage be informed by this, this new life? How would my neighborhood be changed? How about my work environment or my CrossFit box or the coffee shop? Or if I'm an employer, how would I treat and change how I treat my employees? If I'm an employee, how is it that I would then work? Not just to earn a paycheck, but to earn a paycheck for the glory of God. What about my marriage and my parenting and my financial management? And what kind of driver would this produce in me? Whew. Somebody stopped me this week, and they're like, hey, I was trying to keep up with you, but I couldn't keep up with you. I was like, me? How dare you, sir? All the while knowing what kind of driving reputation I've earned over the years. And then I get to teach my daughter how to do this. This is going to be great. He assumes, friend, that something is going to change after the table. And it's bringing that bread of life. Not just the bread and the cracker and the juice, bringing that bread of life into all of life. Now, let's look and see the assumption that Paul made, what kind of life this represents. And he didn't really prescribe for you some things to do. He instead describes for you a vision. What does it look like for a man or a woman of God to actually follow Jesus in all of life? How do we do that? What does that look like? And Paul writes for us, how is it that we remember Jesus in all of life? Well, first and foremost, remembering Jesus in all of life begins with seeking and thinking. And you're right now going like, that sounds already too difficult. I would rather just feel him. I would rather just a prophetic word. I would rather just a miracle. I would rather just to see I don't actually have to want to actually seek or do anything as a result of the grace that God has given me. After all, it's by grace. But friends, grace loses all meaning if we don't take hold of it and then live out of the fuel of that grace. There are two things he says to do. Seek and set your minds. To seek is to say you are devoted and you are intent on finding something. And to set your minds means you are intently focused a different word for set your minds, but if you start spooling it out, it's not so far away from being devoted, isn't it? To set your minds on something? Yesterday, I had my mind set on watching the eclipse. Did you do this? And so um, what I realized was that I was ill-prepared, and so um, Sunday morning, I found myself seeking searching my whole house. Me and Moses were up in the attic looking for old x-ray films that I could cut up, double over, and then look at the sun with my x-ray films. You know you could do this if you don't have like a welder's helmet or glasses. You can take x-ray films, double them up, be sure to double them up, and you can use those to watch uh, the sun, right? And so I'm looking all over the place. I'm in the attic with my son. I actually turned off the light and let him up there by himself, and I was like, all right, man, we'll see you later. Have fun. And he was like, I thought you were really going to do it when you turned the light off. I thought I was really living up here now. And I was like, no, man, what are you doing? Jeez, what kind of a dad do you think I am? All right. 
Still haven't won him over. He still thinks I'm going to abandon him in the attic. All right. Uh, but we were seeking. We were everywhere. Me and Moses were all over the house until finally I looked behind some pictures in a closet that we don't really go into. And there it was, the x-ray films that I thought I had. Cut them up. We were out then setting our minds on things above. We were looking. We were gazing. We were looking through the, I mean, it looked ridiculous. It hurt your eyes a little bit. And then you're like, okay, I can't do that enough. Can't do that too much. But we went out there and we kept going out throughout the day for the next two hours. We were done seeking and now we were trying to just, my whole day was distracted because now my mind was set on seeing something that was heavenly. I couldn't focus on anything else. That's what happens when you set your mind on something. You seek after it and then you get a little bit obsessed with it. And Paul is saying that no longer are you to be obsessed with the things of the earth. But now, as a believer, it is assumed that since you have been raised, that's what it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, and this uh, understanding of Greek is it's not really an if, it's a since. Since you then have been raised with Christ, seek, set your mind, your mindset and your eyeballs have a different gaze, not on the earthly things, the things of the dirt, but on heavenly things, and we're intently focused on finding whatever it is that God would have us here. We are of the earth, friends. We did get created from the dirt, no matter what uh, your school might t teach you. We did get created from the earth with Adam, right? We do live on the earth as, as somewhat um, uh, citizens of a country, but the Bible then starts to declare to us that we're not citizens of any country or of the earth, but we are citizens of heaven itself, we are of the earth, we are on the earth, but friends, your life was not recreated in Jesus to live for the earth. You are not created for this place. You want to know why you can't get enough of Amazon deal days? Why you keep going back again and again, and they know it. They know you'll come back, and they'll put a 40% off little deceptive little sign on things like, I'm saving money. No, you're not. You just spend it. You just spent the money. Now you save money, you don't spend it. That's how that works. But they know you'll come back again and again and again and again. Because we have our minds sometimes set on things of the earth, of accumulation and achievement and all the things that make us feel good in the tiniest little moments of life. And guess what happens right after we get that thing that shipped overnight for free? We want something else. Nothing can satisfy us because we're not made for this earth. This truth needs to be hammered home daily in order for us to become people who represent a kingdom that is not of this earth. Gazing on the earth, finding and chasing after the things of this earth are easy and attractive. You know why? Because you can compare yourself to other people on the earth and you start to feel pretty good about yourself. That's called self-righteousness. You base righteousness on yourself. It's crazy how these things, we go, oh, I'm not self-righteous at all. Oh, yeah, we are, man. I'm at the top of the list. Absolutely. But look at the language here. It says, if you have been raised, and it is true, you have. You have. You are now to be a person that rehearses the gospel story repeatedly on the fact that you have been raised from the grave. And Paul says it over and over and over again, particularly in Colossians. Go back with me one chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I could go, I could read a lot more here, but I'm not going to. 
Verses 12, I'm sorry, verses 13 and 14 in Colossians 2. And you, look at what the Bible says, and you, this is true of you as a believer. If you're not a believer, it's not true. But you who were dead and your trespasses. Now everyone was once dead. And you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, with Jesus. God did the resurrecting things here. He's forgiven you of all of your trespasses, your sins, your iniquities by canceling. How did he forgive you? He canceled the record of debt. Yes, you and I racked up a debt that we could never pay off in our sin, and it stood against you with its legal demands. In the courtroom of God, our sin stood there committing, uh, c- condemning us. And what did God do in the midst of that? It says he nailed it to the cross right? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And I'll just give you a little bonus. It's not on the screen. And when he did, y'all, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The victory has been won. If you're a believer, we walk in victory. We walk in resurrection power as much as the fact because you have died, Old Lance should be gone. He's still around. He likes to come out of the grave every once in a while. But he should be gone. And the theological reality is this. He truly is dead. He has died. That's the reality behind this whole idea of seeking and setting our minds. But friends, do you remember that you have died? I got saved. So this last week I celebrated 24 years of being a Christian. October 12th. 1999 at about 10.05 p.m. I was at Breakaway at, at College Station at A&M and uh, got saved that night like God showed me all my sin. He showed me the, 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 the amount of sin that I had and that it was separating me from him. And then he backed it up when he also said, and I love you. And I was a snotty mess for the rest of the night. And that was the night that I became a believer. And so this last week, I just was like told my wife, I was like, man, like it's 24 years been walking with the Lord. What a gift. What a gift that I don't deserve. And here's evidence that I don't deserve it. I turned 21 that year in December. Got saved in October. What did I do? You know, every 18-year-old wants to turn 21, do they not? And on 21, you do things when you're 21. And although I was a believer, I went out to the bar I called up my old drinking buddies, my old party buddies, went out to the bar and did shot after shot after shot after shot. And my old drinking buddies were there cheering me on. And what were they saying? He's back, baby. Yeah, he's back. And the first shot was me celebrating that I was 21. And about the third or fourth or however many left, I was grieving. I was just trying to drown drown out what I was doing. Because the, the cry of my heart, not the confession of my lips, and certainly not the confession of my life in that moment. The cry of my heart was, I'm not back, and I'm never coming back. But there I was, sitting in a grave, trying to enjoy myself. You are dead. So much so that I'll give you my life example, but also read a little bit about the example of someone who did it better than me. That's why we remember his name in history, and no one will remember mine. Name, uh, by the name of uh, Augustine. Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo. He was a North African pastor. 
And uh, he had a licentious life, let's say, before he came to know Jesus. He came to know Jesus at the age of about 32. He was lusty. You can read all about it in his book on uh, confessions. You can read all about his life and what he did confess and how he came to know the Lord and how it changed his life. And there's one story that's not found in confessions, but it was first told by Charles Spurgeon. And ever since then, every pastor has said, I like that, whether it's true or not. And so I will repeat it. And so whether it's true or not, I also will repeat it. And it was basically this, that uh, Augustine was walking down the street one, one day as a believer. And he had many mistresses. As a matter of fact, he lived with one that was a prostitute before he knew Jesus. Right? And that prostitute saw him on the street yelling out to him, saying, Augustine, Augustine, why won't you stop? And so finally she gets in front of him and says, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine responds back, legend tells us, she says, yeah. he says, yes, but it is not I. And he walks on. You have died. It's the theological reality of our life. You want to know what it looks like to live all of life and memorial to Jesus? You're dead. But who lives? It says it right there in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, he's your life. He's the one that lives in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the mystery that the world is looking at. I know you. I know your name. I knew you from high school, but there's something different about you. We pray they see. If you see people from high school and you didn't change, something ain't right if you're a believer, at least for me. Because I was not a believer in high school. It wasn't until my junior year in college. Something then must change. Augustine knew, and so must we know, that we have died and Christ now lives in us. That means our old interest to self, our instant satisfaction on settling for a life without Jesus are dead and buried. Jesus' interests are to increasingly become my interests. That's what seeking and setting your mind means. His throne, his rule, his salvation, his purposes, his ways, his words, his generosity, his mercy, his grace, his justice are now to be mine in increasing measure. Yes, follow Jesus in all of life in increasing measure. That's what it means to seek and set because you've died and Christ lives with you. And so friends, where is your gaze? Where are your interests? Whom are you seeking and following? Have you set your mind not just on an eclipse? That's a beautiful picture of looking up. It might look strange to those that don't know there's eclipse going on. But for all of us that are in the know, it's, not, it's what you would do, isn't it? It's the same thing for following Jesus. And Paul knew this. God knows this. That's why he starts here. What you seek, you will savor. What you look at, you will love. Every person that's ever struggled with sexual sin knows that to be true. What you look at, you will start to love. Now, I'm going to unpack that a little bit here in just a moment. But that's the reality behind all of this. Remembering all of life begins with seeking and thinking. And that thinking is setting your minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. The second thing, second description that Paul's going to give us, right, is that remembering all of life means that we are called to put, to put the old self to death. Put the old self to death. This is the, the middle part of this, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You have died, but there are inconsistencies in all of us, aren't there? 
We no longer live to the life that we once lived. We have been put in the grave. But as now resurrected folks, sometimes we like to dabble back in the grave. Right? And Paul is telling us you have died. That's your theological reality. But we also know that your practical reality is you still want to sin. But you've got to put it to death. Though we all have died, there are parts of our old life which refuse to stay in the grave. And when those parts of our lives, the corners of our hearts, start to climb out of the pit to live once again, we are faced with a decision. Will we put it back in the grave and bury it continuously, or will we start to dig around so that little baby can grow? All right, it's Halloween-ish, it's fall it's October, so let me bring a little bit of Halloween and October into this conversation, right? Oh, man, this is going to be good. Y'all's faces are already like, I don't know about that, Pastor. If you like Stranger Things, this is what we do. If you remember Stranger Things, if you've never, anybody watched Stranger Things, raise your hand. Go ahead, no shame, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, me too. All right, if you've watched Stranger Things, you know that there's one of those seasons where Dustin finds a little creature, and he starts to feed this little creature. He thinks he's found a new species. And so he brings this little creature into his home. He starts to feed this little creature. This creature starts to grow until one day it gets a little bit out of hand. And that creature kills his cat. And then, even in that situation, Dustin starts to defend his little creature. He's now named Dart for D'Artagnan. He's now named Dart, and he's named it. And this little creature starts to grow and grow, and all of a sudden his friends get in on this, and they go, hey, man, that's not a new species. That's a demigorgon, which if you don't know the whole deal, you're thinking, what a nerd. We didn't know you were such a nerd. <laughs> it's a demidog, right? And so all of a sudden this thing that he's been, he's been naming, he's been petting, he's, been, he's led into his home, is going to at some point kill him or want to kill him. That's exactly what we do with sin. We name it. We, we keep it in the household for a little while. You know, if it suits us, we'll keep it around. But our friends are there, that, de that devoted to community, are there to say, hey, man, that thing's going to kill you. That sin you've been petting for a long time is going to end up taking you down. It's the same thing that we do. And if, well, maybe if, uh, if that is not a good example, maybe uh, one from the 80s will be a good example. Now, I've been warned by my wife that this is not going to work. But have you not heard of the cinematography and the masterpiece behind A Weekend at Bernie's? In the year of our Lord, 1989th year? Now, if you don't know what this is all about, if you're maybe below 40, let me introduce you to, this is what it says, fun-loving salesmen Richard and Larry are invited by their boss, Bernie, to stay the weekend at his posh beach house. Little do they know that Bernie is arranging to have them killed. When the plan backfires and Bernie is killed instead, the buddies decide to not let a little death spoil their vacation. They pretend Bernie is still alive, leading to hijinks and hilarity galore. Now, for those of us that have died in Christ, we bring out our old friend Bernie and we parade him around as long as it suits us and the vacation goes on of continuing to sin and living for the pleasures of this world. I know it's a bit ridiculous, but are we having fun? It's okay. A little bit of weekend at Bernie's makes us realize, man, that's a little funny, but really the reality behind it is really deadly, just like Dart. I just said just like the demi-dog. 
But here's the deal. John Owen said this the best, not Bernie or Dustin. He said, you be killing sin or it will be killing you. Perhaps not even better than the apostle Peter who said in 1 Peter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you're not of this world. You're of a different world. I, I, I urge you as sojourners, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. Not only have you died, but Paul charges you, put it to death, what is earthly in you. Put them away in verse 8. Put off the old self in verse 9. For you are at war. Now, friends, I can't dig into every little detail here in regards to all the things that he talks about that we are to put, a de- put to death. But I, don't, I do want you to see two things. Number one, the categories here. And number two, I want to dig down just one time into one thing. The categories are your sex life. Just gonna let that pause. For all you teenagers in the room, the Bible is really clear and consistent. God has something to say about what you do with your body, not just with your eyes and seeking and your mind on setting it above, but your body. It matters to the Lord, otherwise he wouldn't put it down here. I'll, I'll unpack that in just a second. Your, your, your sexual uh, appetites and preferences and relationships, money, Right? He goes on. I'll just read it. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires. Also, coveting. That's called materialism. That's called greed. That's still a sin. I listened to a sermon in preparation to this, and he had said that he listened to another sermon and in preparation for his, which said this, and I'm, I'm compelled to remind us that there's only a few things that Jesus is like, hey, be prepared and watch out for all of this kinds of stuff. And one of the things he says to be prepared for and to watch out for is greed. There are very few people that are going to come to a pastor and be like, pastor, I'm really struggling with my greed. No, 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 they're struggling with pornography and alcoholism, trying to love your wife and, 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 and love your, your husband and parenting. But greed is not a thing that we think about, and yet Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. It's everywhere. It's a sneaky little booger. Your money, your materialism, your relationships, isn't that what it continues on to say? In these you two once walked, verse 8, put them away. Yeah, all the things, not just your sexual relationships and your materialism, but your anger. I like to control people. That's why I'm angry. Wrath. I like to take anger out on people because they didn't do what I hoped they would do. Malice. Ooh, I'm going to get back on them. You know what? They're always like this with slander and all the obscene talk that comes from your mouth. It's all about relationships and how you love people. It's your speech and how you slander them or lie to them. And he goes on, right? All these things are here. But let me just again back up to this reality. Paul starts in at least four different letters, when he starts to unpack these vices that he knows Christians for all ages will be dealing with, he he consistently starts with your sexual preferences, your sexual appetites, your sex life. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for, for yourself? You want to know what your, the will of God is for your life, teenagers? What does God want for you? To be sanctified. Mainly, to you become holy. You be set apart from the world. How do you do that? That you abstain from sexual morality. First, 
1 Corinthians 6, 18, he unpacks the, the, the value of the body because the Holy Spirit lives there because this is our temple to God. He says, flee from sexual immorality. So friends, if you are flirting with sexual immorality, God's call to you today is to flee. What do you do when you flee versus flirt? When you flirt, you get a little close to it, don't you? You start to just maybe wonder what it would be like. And that pretty much consistently sums up not just the world around us, but statistics will tell us we're in the 90 percentile, just like the world with pornography and everything else that comes along with sexual morality. This is our problem. So friends, don't flirt, flee. When we flee, we're like Joseph out of Potiphar's house. He, he leaves everything, he'll leave everything behind in order to get out of there. We flee, we get out. You have an enemy, friends, that's not coming against you like the Revolutionary War where they stand up next to you, they blow trumpets and, and, and beat on drums and just start shooting each other. That's not how the enemy works. The enemy is much more like a terrorist organization going behind the lines and coming to get you and bring you back to their territory. And they do it not just under the cover of night, but under the cover of pleasure. He will want you to amuse yourself to death. He wants you to seek pleasure for pleasure's sake. Because just like that Amazon Prime deal, there's no end to that kind of life. There's also no satisfaction in that kind of life. See, for us, we have to move beyond just coming real close. And how, can, how far can we go until we sin? We've got to leave it behind because we're dead to that old world, putting to death, murdering the things inside of us, killing the sin that so wants to entangle us because it's waging war against our soul. But that's not enough just to put some things off and to put it to death. We also have to put some things on. And so that's the third thing, right? If we're going to remember Jesus in all of life, we have to put on the new self. That's what he says in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You, friends, have a new identity in Christ. No longer alienated, no longer in exile, no longer far away from him, no longer in Gentile, no longer a sinner. Instead, friends, you are God's chosen one. You believe that about yourself? That out of, for, for no reason at all did he choose you for his team. You weren't good at kickball when he brought you onto the kickball team. Actually, you had no legs. Like, that's what the Bible will tell us, is that you were just completely sinful. You had nothing to bring to the team. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one right there, that one's mine. I can't have that one. That one's mine. We are God's chosen one, so we've become alive in him. Our identity now is in Jesus. You see, the key to all of life, putting on this new identity, is living out of it. The problem is we're wearing old clothes. So to demonstrate, I have some old clothes of mine. Now, this one I got when I was 12 years old, and uh, it's kind of boring, so I'm not going to put it on. I still use this one on occasion when it's, when it's nice and uh, cold out. This is still my jacket. St I got it literally at 12 years old. Um, it, my dad's handwriting is right here, and it says Lance on it, as if we knew there was some other boy in our family that was going to need it. But nonetheless, this is a jacket that I wear when the occasion calls for it. I don't wear this around. You've never seen me in this. And you've gone, yeah, dude, what's the deal with the hunting jacket? You would probably think, actually, I came in this morning, and Rodney goes, headed to the deer stand after this? 
And indeed, I'm not. I had to do a baseball game after this. But nonetheless, this fits the occasion. It's from when I was 12 years old. I got that one first. The next one that I got, and this one's real fun. I'm going to cover up the next one. Ooh, because that's real fun. All right. This one, now I'm going to put this one on now. All right. That's right. This, friends, wait, many of you didn't know this, is a members-only jacket, number one. Number two, I used to ride a Harley when I was 14 to 17, and this was my, my get-up right here. Yeah, it still fits. Thank you very much. I know you're surprised. Okay? But when I was 14 to 17, this was my get-up on the weekends with my dad. We would go ride Harleys, and we would go throughout all the little, little uh, area up there, and we'd ride our motorcycles, and that was fun. And I put this on to protect me from road rash should I ever fall. It's real leather. It's really nice. I actually still like this. It was in my... In my I didn't even get to show you the, the cool stuff on the back. Look at that. I got, I got colors, man. Like, <laughs> right there, Har Harley Davidson. All right. Then we moved on. And uh, this was something of my past that I found in my, in my, in my closet this, this week. Ooh, look at this. Ooh, this is fun. This is uh, my letterman's jacket that I finally earned my senior year. It took forever. But, ooh, it, there's nothing on it. Because we were, we were poor, basically, and we didn't do that back in the day. Like, if you did that, you were just trying to get attention. Because this, this is not enough attention getting. But a little, little baseball right there. And that's uh, Houston Lee, no longer exists. But there you go. That was, this also was a part of my identity, right? In high school, I, mean, I would sport this thing in the hallway and be like, what's up now? Right? Now, this is all kinds of, it's nasty is what it is. But <laughs> it's old. It's gross. But this was a part of my identity at one point. Now, this one is a lot of fun. Most of you don't know this about me. You might have uh, surmised that I was uh, a baseball player, but no one, no one probably knows Hang on. You have one of those. See, there's an identity there. I want to be a part of that. Y'all didn't know this one fit too, did you? Now, the thing about an FFA jacket is that it intentionally shows the belt buckle. Come on now. Now, when I brought this out this morning, my wife goes, fat guy in a little coat? <laughs> Dang! Sick burn! But check it out. Robert E. Lee, Houston, right there, got my name right here. That's right, raised the hog growing up. You had to wear this as part of the things you were involved in. Now, I'm going to wear this for the rest of the time. You ready? <laughs> I don't think so, but thank you for asking. Now, is this not a little odd? All the things that I just, I'm just like sweating from all the activity. <sighs> all the, if I walked around with my Letterman's jacket on, what would you do? You'd be like, bro, what is going on? You're, really, you're going back to the old, old days, the glory days? If I, if I wore this around, what would you do? I mean, it's a little strange for those in FFA who's got to have the belt buckle, right? It's a little strange even for that. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. How much more then when we put on the righteousness of Christ? How much more? Because I can't give you a robe that's righteous, but that's, that's what he's saying. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, his holy and beloved ones, put that robe on and, and start sporting that around your neighborhood and your networks and the nation. Take off the foolish garb that you had because it doesn't fit you anymore. Not just in size, but a part of who you are. Those are all grave clothes. This is of an old life. This doesn't represent me. It's still in the closet. I could pull it out if I want to, but what, what benefit is it? And so it is with grave clothes. 
So it is with those sins that we so want to keep around and feed every once in a while, but eventually will kill us. Instead, Paul is calling us to put something else on, and it is a new identity with new new rhythms, and new activities. Not raising a hog, not riding a Harley, uh, ultimately not even playing a sport or a hobby. But there's new things that we're to be dedicated to just as anybody else would be dedicated to all those other things that are lying on the floor. What are they? There's four, really, in, in, in all of this, and I'll just unpack them quickly. First, Jesus' character. Beloved, Put on his compassionate hearts. Put on the, the, the kind of kindness that Jesus gave to the leper and to the adulterer and to the faint at heart. Put on the humility that it took to come down here. Put on the meekness. Put on the patience that he has with you. Share that with others. Bear with one another. Right? This is all about the character of Jesus. Put it on. Wear it. Make sure people know you by these things. Forgive one another. We know it's hard, but it's a choice. You put it on. As the Lord has forgiven you, there's your motivation, so you also must forgive. Not an option. Must forgive other people. Above all, what's the thing that's going to be the belt buckle around this whole thing? Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We put on the character and the virtue of Jesus. And when we do that, here's three things that happen. The peace of Christ will rule us. It will rule in our hearts. We'll no no longer wonder what are we missing out on by all those pleasures of the old life. With the peace of Christ ruling us. That word for rule is like an umpire calling strikes and balls. He He is ruling our life now. He's ruling us through peace. We don't have to wonder what we're missing out on. Indeed, you were called in one body. And be thankful, it says. The next thing, the third, let the word of Christ then dwell in you richly. How will we get the peace of Christ which will rule us? By dwelling richly in the word so that the word of God can richly dwell in us. See, again and again, we get pulled back into the word of God. And then finally, the motive for all this, and this is where we started Whatever you do, and in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Our motivation is the name of Jesus and not our own name. It is his crown. It is his glory. It is his reputation, not our own. And the only thing that's going to fuel all this is gratitude. Three times in verse, one in verse 15, one in verse 16, and one in verse 17. It says, and be grateful with thankfulness give thanks. Have you lost your gratitude? If you have, it's because you've forgotten what happens at table. And if you've forgotten that, then you've forgotten what the table represents. But the God of heaven and earth, the God who created all things, came down from heaven to the earth to save sinners and rebels and wanderers and those that would never appreciate him and betray him and desert him and backstab him and pluck his beard out and spit on him and mock him. And that's you. If you have forgotten, that's you. Let me remind you, that's you. That you were dead in your trespasses. But God has made you alive together with him. It's him. He didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. No, God's chosen ones. He's brought us into the family. 
So let us not forget what God has done for us. So two questions as we leave. What areas of life do you need to put to death so that the life of Jesus might come alive in you? Are you aware of some areas in your life where you've flirted with those things instead of fled from them? I am. I'm keenly aware this week, especially on my 24th birthday, that I still don't, I still don't have it right. Still plenty of things tugging at my heart. I still want other things that I already, that I don't have. And I'll never get, and I don't need. There's a yearning in my heart, and I need to put those things to death. That's the first question. What in your life do you need to put to death so that the life of Christ may come alive through you? And the second thing is a little more, uh, a little longer. If your habits of committing to others, of loving others sacrificially, of marriage, of parenting, of generosity, and all of life are now filtered through whether or not you get what you wanted out of your life or what Jesus gets what he wants out of his, out of your life, how's that going to change? And now that I say that out loud, it makes no sense. But here's the, here's the point of it. If you pursue all that you're pursuing, who's getting the fame out of it? Who's getting the glory? Is it you or is it Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful that you love us in spite of ourselves. We're grateful that you have not left us in our own old foolish clothes stuff that used to mark us when we were younger. The naivety we've had in regards to sin and our attitude towards sin, may those things just be put off. So today, there are people in this room right now that are wondering what it means to be a Christian. There are people in this room right now that are wondering how do I get past these things? And the answer is not found in doing something better or different. That's part of it. We need to put boundaries around our lives and continue to pursue other things. But the answer is to seek. We're going to seek Jesus. And Lord, we're grateful that you have promised that those who seek me will find me. And as we're seeking, Lord, may our journey of seeking, may our intent journey to find something new and heavenly and upward to, to look at be rewarded when our minds are set on the things that are above in our lives. So for all of us that are struggling with, uh, with all sorts of addiction to sin, all sorts of hang-ups, all sorts of realities in our life that we just wish weren't there anymore. May we have a renewed vision of the things that we need to let go of, to put in the grave, to leave in the grave, to bury forever. Would you give us the power to do it? By the resurrection of your son Jesus and the power of resurrection who resides in all of us, by your spirit, would you put to death in us? Would we put to death in us the things that are keeping us from honoring you? and finding our truest hope and treasure in your son Jesus. For those that don't know this walk, I pray that you would convict them, allow them to repent, believe in the good news of the gospel. Their eternity hangs in the balance. That the old record of debt 
can stand against you for eternity, or it can be set aside as the Father has nailed it to the cross with his son Jesus to set us free from all those demands. Help us, Father. Help us, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.